Greetings from Taipei. As you might have noticed, I haven't been posting episodes as frequently, and that's because I've mostly been spending time with family, my daughter, and just taking it a bit slower in Taiwan. However, I wanted to start putting out some older episodes. In the last year or two, I think my subscriber count has four or five xed, which means many of you probably haven't listened to some of the older episodes, which I think are just as good as some of the newer ones. So, without further ado, I'll dive into this week's episode. Welcome to Reimagine Work, a podcast dedicated to questioning our modern conception of work and its role in our lives. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I have conversations with philosophers, authors, creators, freelancers, and vagabonds who are trying to make sense of this question in their own lives. Join me while I try to navigate the emerging future of work. If you'd like to read more of my writing, explore this podcast, or find ways to work with me, you can go to think-boundless.com. Today, I'm having a conversation with John Zaratsky. He was a designer in the tech industry, and he's worked with hundreds of startups with his time at Google Ventures. He's obsessed with redesigning time and thinking about what matters in life. He spent 18 months living on his boat sailing around Central America, and we're going to dive into the essay he wrote about that called, What Quitting My Job to Sail Around Central America Taught Me About Fulfillment. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks a lot for having me. So I'd love to start with growing up. I am recording this from my hometown of 4,000 people, and you write a bit about returning to Wisconsin where you are now, but you grew up in a really small town of 1,000 people. Yeah. Take me back to growing up. Like, What was life like then? So I grew up in this town called Green Lake, which is, uh, which is on a lake and it's kind of a, it's kind of a summer vacation destination. Uh, so, but I live there year round. My family is from there and and most of my family still lives there. Uh, and so we were, we were townies, you know, we were like, uh, we were the locals and, and every summer the town would fill up with people from mostly from Chicago, but also from Milwaukee. And so for for three months, uh, the town felt a lot bigger than it really was, and there was sort of an energy, and there was sort of a, um, there, I had this sense from all of the people who would come to Green Lake for the summer that there were there were bigger things out there. Uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't sheltered by any means, and you know we we took vacations and stuff, but. Um, my dad ran and still runs a small manufacturing business, um, and so it's not like it's not like we had in my family big connections to, you know, big companies or big cities or or you know anything like that. And so, uh, one thing that really stands out about growing up was um, was just sort of this sense of a bigger world that I had little glimpses of or little bits of access to via the the people who would would come to our town in the summer. At the same time the other thing that I really remember that I think has has had an impact on me is uh I went to a really small school. Um I had 30 uh, 36 kids in my class and only 32 graduated. 
uh, which gives you a sense of the, the kind of place it was. And, um, and I, I was always kind of like a, a nerdy, unpopular kid. You know, I, I did well in school and I was into like band and like stuff like that. So I, I wasn't a great athlete. I wasn't, you know, I didn't check the boxes of like what it meant to be cool or popular in that environment. And so I think that I, um, the places that I got validation or encouragement from, you know, from, from my parents and from other adults and to some extent for my, for my peers, like, especially as I got older and got a little bit more savvy, um, were like projects were like places where I could be creative and I could, I could kind of focus my energy on becoming really immersed in something, becoming great at something. And so, you know, I used that in school and I was the valedictorian of my class. Uh, but I also got like super into music and I got super into different kinds of, you know, design and, and, and writing and a bunch of other projects. Um, and I think that, you know, having the validation and having the encouragement to, to pursue those types of things became sort of my ML that sort of became my, mm. my default mode. And so when I grew up, got through college, you know, started working, um, I continued to pursue those types of projects, projects that really reward deep focus, uh, creative thinking, and so on. So we'll definitely move forward and uh, dive into the break you took sailing around. But I often find when adults take breaks that a lot of these things from childhood reemerge. Are there any projects that pop into your mind that you worked on as a kid that have kind of reemerged now? The break that we took, um, which was uh, a sailing trip, um, that is really a direct result of the way that I grew up. I grew up, uh, like I said, in this on town uh, on a lake, yeah, and and sailing and boating and swimming and all that stuff was definitely a part of how I grew up. And uh, it, it, and at the time, like when I was a kid, I was a competitive sailor. So I raced, um, we would like go to the other like neighboring lakes and like the other kids would, would, would sail and we would all sail together. You know, it's just like a traveling, you know, little league team or whatever, but, but sailing in these tiny little boats. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it was always framed as a competitive thing with, it was very outcome focused, you know, so it was like the goal of a race is to win. Um, but, but despite that along the way, I managed to develop a real uh, love for sailing, for being on the water. And I also um, developed kind of a taste for the the mechanical and systems side of, of boats and fixing them and, and maintaining them and making sure they were sort of uh, working properly. And so um, one of the things that that a lot of people like about sailing, myself included, is that it really is a lifelong pursuit. It doesn't depend 100% on physical strength or fitness, although that's certainly an important part of it. But um, it's something that I was just able to continue to grow and develop through my childhood as a as a you know like a, a younger adult. And then you know um, I'm 36 now, and so like you know it's very much still um, something that I care about and and you know, in, in some ways leaving our jobs and going on this big sailing trip was like a very, uh, dramatic break, you know, this, this leap into something new, but in other ways it really felt like just a, a continuation, a build of things that I had enjoyed my entire life. 
Maybe let's dive into that. What was the lead up to deciding to make this? Maybe we even step back a couple years from it. Was there a growing sense of maybe there's something more than just this career stuff? I know you had worked in Chicago and San Fran, two pretty intense cities, but yeah, uh, maybe talk to me about that evolution of uh, some of the years leading up to uh, eventually taking this trip. My wife and I, we both... Um we did what you're supposed to do. <laughs> we were, you know, kind of uh, rule following type of kids. And so when we graduated from college on a Saturday, I guess it probably was, um, we both started working on Monday, you know, it was oh, wow. like we, um, we, we, which is good. I mean, we were very like fortunate to have jobs lined up right away. Um, we were fortunate to graduate at, you know, in years where the economy was strong and so on. Um, but we started by the time we got into our like early 30s we started to have this feeling that like we that we just wanted to do something different that we just you know the the uninterrupted string of school 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 work 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 um was i guess starting to get old um and so at the same time, we also um, had this feeling that maybe San Francisco wasn't going to be our forever home. Right. It's um, it was a place where largely these days, and I think you know, even over you know over the past decades, it's a place that people go um, to to be ambitious, to pursue uh, careers and and money and um, and status and you know, we didn't necessarily relate to that, even though that was why we moved there. You know, we moved there because of my work. But we started to feel like we were on a somewhat divergent path. And at the same time, like a bunch of people that we knew had started to leave San Francisco. Um, we don't have kids, but a lot of our friends do. And so uh, people were leaving either either going to the suburbs or moving, you know, across the country or, or back to wherever they were from, because uh, that's that was a they felt that that was better for their kids, um, for their families. And so we found ourselves after eight years in San Francisco with this feeling like, why are we here? You know, we, um, we could be anywhere. We could be doing anything. We, you know, a big part of all of this that maybe we'll, we'll touch on is, is money. And we, we were, we always, uh, saved a lot of money and we, we built, uh, a portfolio that could partially fund our, our life, even if we weren't working. And so, you know, we're sort of looking at our, this situation like, well, why here? Why not go and try something else? So um, so that was sort of how we were feeling. And then, you know, like I said, I kind of had this natural build of interest in boats and sailing and traveling. And uh, it just, you know, it didn't so much click together as it just sort of generally kind of all fell into place. Um, right. and, and, uh, and from that point it was really just a few years of like kind of more intense planning and, and, you know, work to actually, right. uh, you know, be able to, to leave and, and take the trip. Yeah. I've almost started to think of cities, especially some of the more expensive ones. I spent 10 years in Boston and New York as, I mean, they're amazing places to go. They're almost like career incubators. It's like, go spend 10 <laughs> years there. But yeah. then get out. I yeah. think I think I experienced some of the disconnect uh, you did when like friends would start leaving, and you look around and be like, "Wait, I thought I was here for the friends, but they're leaving." And yeah. if I'm not here for the money and the power, yeah. what am I doing? Right? It's um, 
but I think there's tremendous benefits to being in these environments, but there's, there's a challenge when you start creating that deeper sense of belonging, which, uh, we'll also get to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, despite growing up in a small town or maybe because of it, I love cities. Uh, and I, from right. after, after growing up, I went to, uh, university of Wisconsin, Madison and Madison's like, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand people. So it's a small city, but I like to say that it's a, it's a microcosm of a real city because right. they have like one of everything, you know, they don't have like a whole, a whole, like, you know, Korean neighborhood, but they definitely have like a few like really solid like Korean restaurants. <laughs> so, so especially if you're not accustomed to living in a city, you, um, you know, when I went to Madison, I was like, oh, okay, this is what cities are like. And, um, and so I very much still, uh, love living in a city and I live in Milwaukee now. Um, but yeah, I totally see what you're saying where, what, uh, there's a certain type of city, I think, or maybe, maybe certain pockets within certain types of cities, um, where, uh, I think it is very difficult to feel like you really belong there. Um, especially if you're not from there, if you, uh, if, if you came there during a time in which a lot of other people were coming for sort of a career kind of, you know, um, transient reasons of, of ambition or striving. How long before you eventually left did you start planning? And maybe walk us through some of the more practical steps. I talked to a lot of people who are taking leaps, and uh, a lot of people think it's just this, like, all right, I wake up, I'm leaving one day, right? But, um, I <laughs> yeah. think the people that manage to do something like this end up uh, putting a little more planning and uh, kind of staying in place for uh, longer than people expect. Definitely, yeah, and... And I'm I'm pretty risk averse by nature, uh, which if for a while I thought was I thought that was a bad thing uh, because I was working in the tech industry. I was I, I worked at a startup. I was working with startups in my role at Google Ventures, and so I was kind of steeped in this world that uh, that sort of romanticized risk taking and these bold moves, these leaps. Um, but that didn't that wasn't me. And um, one thing that kind of turned that that thinking around was listening to a, an interview with, I, I think it's uh, Brian Koppelman, who's a um, yeah, uh, like a screenwriter. Yeah, it m- might have been a different like different screenwriter, but it was definitely like that type of creative role where you know you you often hear these stories of you know, and then I just decided to move to LA and you know start start over and you know whatever pursue my dream, um, and and he had such an interesting way of talking about his own story and, you know, and giving advice to people who are, who are starting out, which is like, like, don't take the big leap. Like if you want to get into, into the pool, like don't just run and jump, like walk up to the edge and like tiptoe your way in. Um, because it's going to, it's going to enable you to, uh, to learn, uh, as you go and build up such a, a valuable base of knowledge and expertise, um, you're going to be able to see how you feel about it before you've made that commitment. Um, and you're going to be able to, to you're going to be operating from a, a place of stability because you can build up, um, you know, whether it's in your investments or whether it's, um, you know, uh, something about your living situation or even just kind of a stable day job that enables you to, to go and take these risks. Um, that's a much better approach. And, and, and that was, that was kind of a transformative moment for me hearing, hearing that from somebody 
you know, who, who, you know, if you looked from a distance, you might think, oh, this is a guy who went and took a big risk. Um, and, and that's very much how we approached, uh, leaving San Francisco and, um, and going sailing. We, um, you know, I've mentioned now, now money a couple of times. And so we, we were saving in the neighborhood of 50% of our income, uh, most of the time, uh, you know, being in San Francisco, we were, we were making good money. Um, but we, we, really resisted a lot of the lifestyle inflation or lifestyle upgrades. Yeah. So stayed in our same apartment. We, um, we had the, the same old used Volvo for, for a long time. Um, so that was a big part of it. Um, we knew that there was a certain set of skills that we would need to do this kind of travel. Some of them being very technical things around maintaining the boat, fixing things on the boat, others being, um, you know, more related to self-sufficiency, uh, you know, comfort with, um, you know, being able to, to prepare food and being able to, you know, just, um, kind of think about, uh, you know, having the supplies and having the things that we would need. And so we just kind of be able, began to nudge our, our life, even though we were living, you know, we, we could have just gone and run to the corner store anytime we wanted. We sort of began to nudge our life in this direction of self-sufficiency and self-responsibility. Um, and, and I think tried to like, we wanted to, we wanted to make sure that we enjoyed the, the elements of that lifestyle. Um, we wanted to make sure that we would enjoy the process rather than just dreaming yeah. about some glorious future and, and jumping into it. What are one or two of the experiments or ways you thought about building skills in that period that you reflect back on that were really helpful? A lot of it was really just doing mini versions of what we, what we were planning. So we had, um, we had, before we left on the the big sailing trip, we had a different boat and we would take like small sailing trips first, just like we would go somewhere for one night. We would like sail somewhere inside of San Francisco Bay and like anchor on anchor the boat. And like we would bring everything that we needed to like make dinner on the boat and like, you know, have everything set up and we would do that. And then we would go home the next day. And then like later that year, we would do that for like a long weekend and then for a week and then for two weeks. And then, um, a couple years before we left on the big trip, we, um, we went for two months. We like took the boat all the way down the California coast um, from San Francisco as far as, um, as Catalina Island and then came back. Um, so all of the skills around uh, maintaining the boat, uh, living aboard, cooking, managing our use of power and water were really essential. Um, yeah, and those, you know, those have, have a direct, a direct connection to the, the specific type of trip that we were taking. Um, they're yeah. not, they're not like these universal skills, but I think there's this, for us anyway, there was this element of uh, even, you know, even if the application had been different, even if we weren't on a boat, there was sort of this, um, there was this undercurrent of trying to shift our life away from you know, relying on conveniences and, and delivery services and things like that toward, um, you know, being responsible for kind of the, the essentials of life ourselves. Well, I love that approach. I think just in terms of trying anything new, it's almost, I think sometimes we make the mental mistake of thinking, oh, well, I want that and I'm just going to go do it all in, right? I think sometimes people think about this as 
job changes, right? They're like, I want to be a yoga instructor. I'm just going to go all in. It's like, maybe you should teach one class first, do a month of classes. Um, I did a similar thing with traveling. Um, I've been living in Asia, but I did a one month trip first. And during the trip, it was like, okay, there's something here. I could do this a little longer. I did three months and now it's, I don't know how long the journey is, but I know I'm comfortable with many different ways of living now. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I, I write about a lot, um, in, uh, in written about in both, both my books, make time and sprint this idea of prototyping changes before you commit to them and about having kind of an experimental mindset. Um, even if you, even if it's something as small as just making a change to your morning routine. Um, I think a lot of, a lot of the books and articles and things that are out there about, about, you know, self-help and time management or whatever they, um, I think they, they're, they over dramatize sort of the, you know, the, the big sweeping overnight change. And they're also extremely prescriptive about these very kind of complicated and rigid, um, checklists you need to follow. Um, and you know, I really think that people should, should experiment with one small change and try it for one day and see how it goes and then reflect on how it went and tweak it the next day. And I think when you operate in that way, you can really work your way up to some pretty major life changes. Um, and that's what my wife and I did. Um, I think there is also, there's always a point when you do need to, to make a leap. Um, but when you have been through this gradual process of experimentation and prototyping, you're so much more confident about that leap that it doesn't feel like a big leap. Yeah, I love that. It's a, also no coincidence you're a designer um, in your work. And I think for me, design thinking was a big mind shift for me as well. I did. I read the book Designing Your Life, which comes out of the Stanford Design School and is a right. similar approach to like prototyping different lives and even just having conversations with people living different lives. And I think Definitely. that's one of the things I hope to do through this podcast is give people a sampling of, okay, here are different uh, ways to live. Here's how they approached it. But uh, yeah. like you said, I'm very wary of like the prescription uh, just because sure. a lot of these shifts are mental, right? And you need to really feel your way through it and see what it, the experience is actually like. Yeah. Um, and And that connects back to what I said about growing up in, in in the small town and how because there were so many visitors I kind of had these glimpses into other people's lives um that were very different from how I was growing up and there were you know when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in terms of work there were there were these key moments where somebody who you know was like a friend of my parents or, or you know I knew their their daughter or their son or whatever um, but maybe they worked in an advertising agency in Chicago or something like that. And being able to just talk to that person um, and and understand like, wow, that's a that's a whole world. Like like there are people who who sit and like do, you know, creative work and think up cool ideas and make things on computers all day long. Like that was um, something as simple as that for a kid who doesn't have access to those things otherwise um, is really, really helpful sometimes, you know, and when I, when I talk to students, um, 
or people who, you know, younger people who are trying to figure out what they want to do. I always try to keep that in mind. I try to remember that to me, this is, this is not a big deal to speak with them. And, um, my life is my life. It's normal, um, to me, but, uh, but I, I try to remember how I felt as a kid kind of getting those glimpses. Cause it is, like you said, it is really helpful just to, to know that there are other approaches out there. And sometimes even in, in lieu of you trying out them out yourselves by seeing them, you can, you can very quickly, uh, have a sense of like, yeah, that's for me or no, maybe not. Right. So you, you said there was still a leap, right? And this was the same for me. Maybe talk to us about that specific, uh, day or, even I'd be curious about like the day after you decided to make this leap, like wh- where was your head at and what was the conversation between you and your wife? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> there are, it, there are some moments that I remember, although the, I don't know if they're exactly that moment. Um, one moment that I remember is when we decided not to make the leap, uh, because we had planned to do this two years before we did. So we left San Francisco on our boat in 2017, but we had originally planned to leave in 2015. And I remember the fall before, and just as a little bit of like kind of sailing related side note, people uh, who are doing these types of trips, they almost always leave in the fall because you want to get south um, before the winter comes, but you can't leave too early because if you leave during the summer, then you're sailing south into the hurricane zone, well, which is not safe. So people usually live in the fall. And uh, so we were going to leave in the fall of 2015. And the year before, um, two things happened. My wife got, a, she was offered a big promotion at work, a job she was really excited about. And I could, could see that the opportunity to write the sprint book, my first book, that that was on the horizon. I didn't yet know if it was going to happen, but it was at least there. And so I remember very vividly the moment when we decided that we were not going to take the leap in 2015, um, which was, which was hard. You know, that was a a very, um, a bittersweet, you know, almost heartbreaking moment, even though I participated in that decision, it's not like Mm -hmm. something happened to me, but it was still a hard, it was a hard decision. But I think ultimately it was really good because it, um, it sort of tested my my resolve or it, you know kind of helped keep me honest about whether i really uh wanted to make this change and so i had to sort of redouble my efforts but i also think that it it um refocused me on on the process so not the outcome not the specific vision of us you know sailing you know with with palm trees in the background but like um okay now there's going to be two more years of this you know working and and you know preparing and prototyping and saving money and uh, learning skills and whatever. And do I, how do I feel about doing two more years of that? Um, and I found out that I, I was excited to have two more years of that, which then just made me feel that much better and that much more confident about, about taking the leap. Wow. So this is going to be a leading question. Do you think that the pursuit of comfort and convenience are natural and inevitable? I do. Yeah. I think that, um, inevitable is, 
That's an interesting word. This, um, this is a quote from your uh, yeah. piece. We say, you say, we view the pursuit of comfort and convenience yeah. as natural and inevitable. Yeah. The reason I wrote that is because the the evolution of uh, human civilization and economies and all the ways in which our, our lives are objectively better today than they would have been a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, um, are really related to comfort and convenience. Um, and not in trivial ways, but in really substantial ways, uh, you know, machines that, um, allow us to do, uh, work more quickly or, um, you know, sanitation, (laughs) you know, uh, things that keep us safe and healthy, um, cars, you know, things that enable us to, um, uh, you know, that, that, that allow us to spend more of our time on things that are important to us. Um, and so I think that there's a very, very strong pull toward seeking those conveniences and comforts because in general, big picture, they have led to good things for us. Um, and so I do think they, I think that that pull is inevitable. I think that it's it's a. I think it's very basic. It's something that's that's kind of deep within us. Um, but I don't necessarily think that we need to submit to that pull. Uh, that's the world that we live in, and those are the forces that exist. But I think that um, even though it feels like a very fixed, unchangeable force, we can choose to um, we can choose to push back against it. And we can, we can choose the line. We can choose the level of comfort and convenience that, that works for us, that makes our lives better without becoming, um, almost an end unto itself, um, where we're we're working more to make money, to afford certain comforts and conveniences that we only need to afford so that we can work more. Um, and so I think we have the power to find that line for ourselves, but I think that there's something very deep and very primal about that that urge toward seeking these things out yeah i really think that is one of the core modern challenges right to figure out where what is the level of comfort and convenience you're seeking we're all seeking it at some level right we're not going to go build a fire although some people might um we're not going to build a fire most of the time instead of cooking something in an oven but yeah what is the level of comfort and convenience you need that you can reach and then you can kind of settle. Yeah. Did you, did you find when you went on your journey that you kind of had a level and then maybe it dropped even lower than you thought? Living on a sailboat, uh, is in general, not super comfortable (laughs) and not super convenient. Um, it wasn't a shock to us because we knew those things because we had, again, we had kind of prototyped what that was going to be like. Um, but it made us much more aware of what our our baseline level of comforting convenience had been. And I think what was really, um, really interesting about it was then after being on the boat for about eight months, we came, uh, we came to Wisconsin and we actually, we lived here last summer for about six months during, uh, during the, the hurricane season. Um, and, we could sort of, it was really interesting because we, we started from this 
this new baseline of, okay, we, we cook all of our own food. Um, the water that comes out of the tap is not unlimited. Um, if, you know, we clean everything ourselves, we fix everything ourselves. That was our new baseline when we got off the boat and came to Milwaukee last summer. And then we got to just like, we got to intentionally and selectively ratchet that level back up. And we got to see what that felt like and which things felt good and which things didn't feel good. And um, one of the defaults that we kind of snapped back into was ordering delivery. Um, so like in San Francisco, when we were both working a bunch, we would use, you know, all sorts of delivery apps to get food, you know, brought to us. Um, but when we were, when we were in Milwaukee and we weren't working in those full-time you know, office jobs, we found that that particular convenience didn't feel good. It didn't, yeah. it's not like it bought us back time from something that we didn't like doing because we like cooking and it, you know, it's, it didn't feel like it was quite worth the money and didn't feel like it was, you know, really enabling anything special for us. Um, on the other hand, there were, there were conveniences that were really, um, amazing and eye-opening to see. Uh, and, and we don't even think of them as conveniences, but like having internet that's always on, you know, like uh, high-speed internet and, and not having to like go and find a place to connect to the internet, but just having it at home, you can just get so much done. Uh, you know, assuming the things you need to do are, are online, of course, it brings with it its challenges too. It's, it, it can be very distracting. Um, living in a home that doesn't require constant maintenance uh, because the, you know, the boat requires constant maintenance, which for the most part I enjoy, but we live in a condo now. And so we don't have, you know, it's not even like a house where we have a, a roof and gutters and our own furnace. And like, you know, we live in a condo building where a lot of that stuff is taken care of. Um, and my wife and I both saw that when we, when we, re, when we added those conveniences back into our life, it freed up a lot of time for us to focus on, projects on contributing to things that that we really cared about and things that were really satisfying and and so that was that was a pretty um pretty eye-opening process and we then went back to the boat for about five months um last winter and we just returned to milwaukee about a month ago um and so we, we we're trying to like um you know find that that line again. We're trying to find that balance where the conveniences allow us to spend time on things that we care about, but they don't, um, they don't, we don't go overboard. Uh, we don't get carried away just, you know, seeking things that are convenient or comfortable just because they're there. Yeah. So you, you mentioned contributing and doing the things you're drawn to. How is your mindset about work shifted? Uh, it sounds like you're working independently now, your wife as well. Uh, how are you guys thinking about that and just designing work around your lives right now? Generally speaking, we were both super lucky. We had great jobs. Um, the The work that we were doing was connected to things that we cared about. Um, my wife worked in healthcare. She worked for a small biotech company that made drugs for very rare genetic diseases. So, um, you know, the, the work that she did helped patients find uh, treatments for these, you know, fatal diseases that they had. Um, so it's truly life-changing work. Um, I worked in, I worked at Google Ventures and my job there was to work with the companies that we had invested in. Um, I was sort of a consultant. I would go in and I would help them 
whether they were trying to launch a new product or reach new kinds of customers, I was there to sort of facilitate uh, them reaching their goals and finding the answers to the questions they had about their business. And so that was very rewarding because it's, it's, you know, it's helping people with their life's work. Um, so, you know, in general, we were super lucky, but we, I think that we wanted to have more control over what we said yes or no to. Um, when you work for an organization, there's a, you know, the, you may have some degree of control, but but, you know, there are certain things you just have to do um, yeah. and there's certain things you do, you just can't do. That's why they pay the salary so they can ask you to do those things you're uh, excited yeah. at a level of two about. Exactly. Yeah. And and also um, and this was much more of, of an issue for my wife, but um, like they also get to ask you or tell you when to do them, um, which, mm. you know, for her sometimes meant, um, you know, being on international flights over the weekend to go and, you know, be somewhere for a a three day conference. Um, and she, she likes to say that she saw the inside of conference rooms all over the world because <laughs> she, she traveled a ton, but, and she went to some really cool places, but for the most part, you know, it was to, um, to go to meetings or go to conferences. Um, so, so yeah, we, it's, you know, we cared about what we were doing, but we wanted to find ways to reframe that and structure it, um, so that we had more control over what we were doing and, when we were doing it. So, um, as a part of preparing to, to go on the sailing trip, we knew that we would need to save money and invest it in ways that would, would be kind of a sustainable portfolio that could continue to fund our travels. Um, and that's a good example of something that we, we developed an appreciation for that was that was decoupled from the specific outcome. So it started because we knew we wanted to go on the sailing trip, but we, um, we also realized that having this fin financial footing would enable us to do other things, um, have other types of freedom. And then we combined that with moving to a place that has a very low cost of living, um, yep. a place where the culture is much less competitive, much more communal, um, and where there just seems to be greater access and opportunity to get involved in things. And so my wife, uh, last summer, she was volunteering with a, uh, a nonprofit here in Milwaukee that helps people um, get access to healthcare. And uh, this fall, she's starting a, a master's in public health program uh, at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Um, and I have been able to focus my time and my energy around the parts of my work that that I loved the most, which were helping people rethink the defaults of how they're spending time at work, but also in their personal lives so that they can put their priorities first, so that they can do the things that that they want to do. Um, and, and I'm still kind of piecing together what that is all going to look like and the specifics of, of how I will pursue that work. Um, but but I, because of going through this, you know, this series of transitions and because of the, the kind of the core base, the stability that we built for ourselves, um, I've been able to, to make that shift. Right. So maybe we can talk a little bit about money. How has your concept of money changed from doing this, not earning that steady income? Maybe 
have you shifted an expectation of like what you actually need and like maybe talk a little bit about that and the role it plays with freeing up time? Yeah, at some, you know, I, I read a lot about how people can make better use of their time and the, the, the people, um, in this, this community that is sort of formed around, around my work, um, they are, they are routinely telling me, you know, I've, I've, I've made these changes to my devices, for example, um, removing email, removing social media, removing the news from my phone, and I'm getting an hour a day back. You know, I'm getting two hours a day back because all those little slices of, you know, I pull out my phone and do a quick check and then half an hour later I realize that I've just been, you know, sort of mindlessly scrolling. People they reclaim those slices and they put them together into real time and and that's a very – um, that's a very real and very valuable thing. But at some point you run up against the sort of wall of economic reality, which is you need money to live in our society. Uh, you know, in, you know, you said, you know, you're not going to go build a fire. And so assuming you're not, you know, uh, going to great, great lengths to be uh, outside the economic system, you need money to live in our, our world. Um, and so, and you need to work. Most people need to work to make that money. And so, um, I think, that the next natural step after you've reclaimed control of your time and your attention is thinking about how you can use your money to buy even more control over your time by generating, uh, by, by, you know, creating investments and, uh, and having assets that produce income that actually kind of take the place of your your salary, your paycheck, um, so that you aren't you don't necessarily have to be on somebody else's schedule. You don't have to work a certain number of hours if that's not what you want to do. Um, there's a there's a a, a writer um, named uh, Tanya Hester who has a great blog called Our Next Life, and she she calls it the work optional life. So it's not that you won't work or that you can't work, but it's just that it's optional. You can choose the types of work that you want to do. And so I think that's, that's like the kind of really big picture, um, thing about money for me is, is that I stopped thinking about, you know, how much is coming in every month and what am I spending that on? And I started thinking much more about how much is, you know, how much is in the pot and what percentage of that can I safely spend each month or each year um, just to support my, you know, kind of the basic essentials of life. Um, and then looking at sort of the degree of freedom that that creates, um, part of related to the the question about, you know, establishing the baseline for comforts and conveniences. Another big thing that happened for us was when we were, um, when we were living on the boat, we spent very little money, um, for the most part, because we were often in places where there was really nowhere to spend money. Right. Uh, and 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 we found that our our kind of instincts about the ways we spent money had totally changed. And there was this really this really this moment that will be that was crystallized in my brain. We we were in Costa Rica and we had just sailed to Costa Rica. We had just arrived there in this particular town that we were in in order to get cleared into the country to pass through immigration and stuff. You actually had to take a bus or a taxi or whatever. You had to go to the airport, which was, I don't know, it wasn't far, but it was 20 minutes or something. And we went to the airport 
and we found the right person to, who could like take our passports and like, you know, process us, you know, in and clear us into the country. But it took them a while. And so we were there, my wife and I, and we were there with um, two other friends who had also come on their boat. And, uh, and there was like a little store and I was like, oh, I'm going to go grab like a bottle of water and something to eat. And so I like go over there and I like grab a bottle of water and I grab like a, a granola bar or something and I go to pay and it's like, it's like $16 or I don't know. It was like, it was just some, uh, it was much more money than I expected it to be. And I was like, like it really rattled me. I was like, this is, this is crazy. You know, I've, I've gone from <laughs> spending no money to now, uh, you know, some water and a snack is $16. And that's, and I've already seen that change now, now that we're back, like, like, you know, in my old life, you know, if I was traveling and I needed that, I wouldn't have thought about it. I would have just handed the credit card and whatever. Um, and so th- anyway, that, that was a moment that really captured for me the way that, um, my, my feelings about spending money had changed and, and my, my wife and I often talk about it as like spending that feels good versus spending that doesn't feel good. And there's really no relationship to the amount of money, the number of dollars. Like we have spent lots and lots of money on things that we feel great about. Um, and we have spent, there have been little purchases like that that are relatively small, but just really, (laughs) <laughs> rattled us in terms of the the sort of the trade-off of, of convenience and value um, with money. So yeah, that's another another way that things kind of got reframed. Yeah, I think for me, I've had a, a flip that's happened, which is I look at that $16 and I say, would I want to work a little more for this if I did this every week? And the clear answer is like, no, I don't want, I don't want to be working to support a $16 uh, Depends how hungry you are, I guess, but uh, <laughs> I don't want to be supporting a weekly $16 um, water and food. Yeah. But it's. I've also gotten to that point, too, where it's like, what are the things I can spend money on that bring me crazy amounts of joy, right? Yeah. And I, that's where I challenge people because people will come to me and be like, well, you can't just expect everyone to live like you as a minimal, minimalist. Like, I'm very happy living like this, but um, my pushback is okay, you, you spend all this money, but like, what are the elements of that, that you don't get a lot of value at? And like, can you double or triple the things that you are getting a ton of value out, out of, and really get a little more joy out of those things? Yeah, totally. And I think there are, um, the, the, the best place to look for those things is in our fixed expenses in our, our living expenses, our rent or our mortgage, uh, transportation, you know, do we own a car? Do we own two cars? How do we get around, um, you know, any kind of ongoing month to month commitments that we have, whether it be, uh, cable television or, you know, a membership or a subscription or something like that. Um, and part of why those things are so, um, so like powerful or so successful as, as businesses is that once you get <laughs> used cancels. to, yeah, once you get used to spending that money, it just happens automatically. But that's why they also represent such great opportunities for us as individuals who are trying to, to change our relationship with money. And so, um, you know, when we were in San Francisco, we, we moved out there in 2012, uh, sorry, 2010. And we were pretty like, uh, you know, we had, we had sticker shock. We were pretty surprised by how expensive it was even then coming from Chicago. And so we rented like basically the cheapest apartment that we felt was, was adequate. Um, and then we just didn't move. 
we we could have moved. We could have spent more money. Um, but that one decision, um, or rather that series of decisions that we made, you know, every time we thought, should we move? Now nah, let's stay. Um, that had a way, way bigger impact than the like, you know, skipping the daily latte or whatever, you know, sort of more, um, you know, discretionary expenses people often focus on. And so, yeah, I totally agree with with your perspective on uh, kind of trimming back on the things that that don't bring value to your life so that you can spend more money on the things that really are important to you. And I think especially when you can do that in the realm of fixed ongoing expenses, that stuff can add up super quickly. So what are your plans moving forward? Are you still thinking about how to balance this? Are you, are you guys going back to uh, pineapple, which you uh, called a boat? We're not. We're actually, um, we're, the, the boat is on the market. So pineapple is for sale. And my wife is going to be starting this, uh, this master's program, studying public health, starting in the fall. Um, and I'm excited to build a business around my work, around writing, speaking, teaching, helping people make time for what matters um, at work with their teams, but also in their individual lives. Um, and I don't know exactly what that is all going to look like, but I'm excited to figure it out. Despite working with entrepreneurs pretty much my whole career, I've never actually built a business myself. Um, right. Technically, I did have a, I had a little web design company when I was in college, but I was, um, you know, it was, it was very much like kind of a fly by night type operation. Um, and so, you know, and I've been exposed to all these, uh, and learned from all these smart entrepreneurs over the years. And so I'm just excited to apply some of those things to my own business. Definitely relates. I think uh, some people are always searching for, well, what do you do now? And <laughs> it's basically, I just say, I'm waking up every day and trying to figure out what's next. And uh, I think for me, I've tried to just do a lot of different experiments, uh, see how I feel, see what resonates, see what seems like something worth doing a little more. Yeah. Uh, are you taking a similar approach of doing experiments? I know you've done workshops, you've done writing, but do you kind of try a bunch of different things? Like when you woke up today, like what, where did you uh, spend your time? Well, when I woke up today, I, I had something that I was really excited to work on that I, that I had been, um, that I hadn't had time for, for like a few weeks, which was contributing an article to this, this website. Um, it's a it's a website. I think it's just called My Morning Routine, uh, maybe Morning Routines. Anyway, it's like this amazing website that's a, kind of a library of morning is this routines. Craig site? No, it's uh, Michael Michael Zander. I think is his name. Um, but it's he's got like hundreds of interviews um, with with writers and 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 entrepreneurs and and you know all, people in all different walks of life. And he invited me to contribute to the site couple months ago and we've been um my wife and I just got back from um from being on the boat and we have been moving in and getting settled and stuff and so I it, it pains me because I haven't had the you know here I, I write about making time for for things that matter and I haven't had the time to actually sit down and and you know write this this interview um and today was the first day that I actually had time so I so I was excited to do that um in general, I would say that I, I have been experimenting quite a bit and I will continue to, although 
you know, I think there's, um, I think there's, there's different phases that I go through where I kind of very much as you might do in a design process where you diverge and then you, you, you converge around the most promising ideas. You know, I go through phases in my life where I diverge and I, I try a lot of different things and then I converge. I focus on the ones that um, I'm most excited about or seem like they're going to you know, help people the most. And so I feel like I'm kind of getting, I'm emerging from that phase where I was very much focused on trying lots of stuff and I've got a pretty good sense of the, the things that are, um, that I'm going to focus on going forward. Maybe we can touch briefly on your book, Make Time. Uh, you wrote a lot about uh, things we can do in our life to free up time. You were personally obsessed with how we can kind of redesign time. Are the, is there anything that jumps out that shocked you when you started digging in about time? I mean, one of the things that's uh, been eye-opening for me is just seeing an Eastern philosophy of time, which is like time is less linear than in the West and um, just the fact that there could be different ways of thinking about it. Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of, so, so make time um, is a book that Jake Knapp and I wrote together. Um, and we also wrote sprint, which is the, the book about the five day design sprint process that we developed at Google ventures. Um, and they're both books about redesigning time, about rethinking the defaults of how we spend time so that we can focus on the things that are important to us. And a lot of the lessons in make time came from our own experimentation. We, we were both working inside of Google, which is a company that is um, great in many, many ways, but also expects and requires that you're, you're always connected, you're always on. Um, there are myriad uh, types of communication and systems and tools that you need to stay on top of and processes that have to happen. And it's a place that um, can honestly be very difficult to get real work done in if you're not intentional about how you spend your time. So we that that was a kind of a shared struggle that we had. And so we started experimenting and, and kind of comparing notes on what was working for us. But this work really got kicked into overdrive when we started doing the design sprints because we could assemble a team within one of the startups that we had invested in. Um, and Google Ventures has now invested in, I think, upwards of 400 but that companies. But at the time we were there, it was, it was you know, um, by the time we left, it was around 300. And we worked with Slack and we worked with 23andMe and Uber and Pocket and Medium and really interesting companies. And we would bring them together for a design sprint. And we, it was almost like a laboratory because we got to tinker with the way that that team spent time within the confines of this very specific process. So for parts of each day for this five days in a row doing this sprint, we were the, you know, we, we set the rules, we set the boundaries. And so that's when we really started to see how things worked, not just for us, but for other people. And you mentioned like the, you know, sort of the, the idea that not all time is linear and that there's not just one way to perceive the passage of time. And we totally saw that in sprints because you take people who are working every day on something they care about, on a mission that they care about, but are maybe not, not happy with the progress they're making. You bring them together and by changing a few of the defaults, for example, by getting people off of devices, having them work uh, face-to-face, 
um, having uh, having them work individually um, on certain steps and then kind of sharing with the group in other steps, it was like it was like time uh, time slowed down because people were able to get so much more done in those five days than they had previously been able to do in weeks or even months of business as usual, of normal work. So that really drove home a lot of the, the key lessons about what works for people. And then those kind of became the the pillars of, of make time. Are there one or two uh, phone hacks we can do to kind of protect our time that seem to resonate with people when you when they try them or um, doesn't even have to be cell phones, but just thinking about the, our digital worlds we're in, I think it's really hard just to stay focused and not get sucked in by these things. It really is. Yeah. And we, Jake and I, we know as well as anybody that there's an entire industry of people who are trying to make our devices and the apps uh, and websites that we use on those devices as seamless and friction-free and delightful as possible. Um, you know, they want it to be as as simple as possible to grab your phone, unlock it, open Twitter, whatever it might be, Instagram, refresh, and get something good out of it. Um, and so our philosophy is to find ways to create barriers to distraction. So to add friction back into what has been optimized and engineered to be a very friction-free process. Um, and so there's a lot of hacks and tips out on, you know, that you can find on the web about your phone and people will say, well, turn off your notifications or make it, make the screen grayscale or move your apps to a different home screen or whatever. And, and those things all create a little bit of friction, but the one change that across the board seems to really help people is just removing the apps. <laughs> um, maybe not every single distracting app, but, but we often encourage people to figure out what their distraction kryptonite is. Um, that one app that, you know, every time they, they look at it, the, the time just sort of disappears and they wonder what they've been doing for the last half an hour. Um, and once you know what that is, experiment with removing the app completely from your phone. And when you do that, you don't have to worry about notifications. You don't have to worry about background refreshes. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, sort of using willpower to resist checking it. And then the, to, to apply that principle to our computers, to our laptops, um, the, the tactic that we suggest is to log out of those sites and to change your password to like a random string and put that password in a password manager app. Um, so for me, I, I don't have, Twitter is probably my distraction kryptonite. That's the thing that I, you know, I, I, I feel kind of pulled toward. Um, Same. That you know really sucks up my time if I let it, and so I don't have it on my phone, which helps a lot. On my computer, you know, if I right now, if I were to pop open a new tab in my browser and type in Twitter.com, I would get hit with a login screen. And in order to log in, I would have to open my password manager. I use one password. I'd have to unlock that. I'd have to look for Twitter. I'd have to copy that password. I'd have to go back to the browser, paste the password, and then sign in. And um, sometimes I do all that stuff because Twitter is useful and I enjoy it. Um, but it's enough friction to break the the mindless kind of uh, reactive cycle of um, you know just kind of popping open that that browser tab and going to Twitter whenever I have a, a down minute. I like that. I I use a similar approach on 
mobile, but I think I'm going to embrace that on the desktop. Um, I just use the browser if I need to go any to anything, and I realize oh, this is kind of annoying to use, so I just end up <laughs> using it less. Exactly, um, yeah, and I think it's you know I, I, like you know I worked in tech, and I still work with a lot of people who, who are in tech, and and you know I consult with with tech uh, startups from time to time. And, you know, I love technology. I think that the things we're able to do today with our devices are absolutely amazing. And so I don't want to, like, I don't want to kill that stuff. I don't want that stuff to go away. But these things are tools. And um, and we should be using them as tools. We should not let them use us. So I'd love to close with uh, just jumping back to something you wrote in your article. And you close with the thought that you you urge people, but you don't really say follow your advice, uh, to see for themselves. Um, and you just talk about just going out into the world to see what are the different lives to live? What are the different ways? Maybe you can say a little bit more about what that phrase means to you seeing for yourself. One of the things that I saw a lot when I was working with startups was that, um, was that people, in myself included, we just have no idea what's going to happen when when we try something new. You know, we think we we think we know, we think we can predict it, we can we can analyze it and do research and whatever. But there's, I think there's always going to be an element of of the unknown when it comes to our experience as humans because it's so complex. Um, and so, you know, I saw that a lot in startups because people would say, oh, we're going to create this new thing and it's going to solve this problem for people. It's going to be amazing. And then they would launch it and then it wouldn't go according to plan because either people didn't have that problem or they 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 didn't understand it or they didn't care enough or whatever. Um, and, I, and I think that's really been – that's a lesson that I have seen apply in other aspects of my life as well. There have been – specific goals that I've had. For example, when I was um, much earlier in my career, I thought that I wanted to start my own company, my own tech startup. And, um, and, and I held on to that goal so strongly. And then I started to, to become friends with and work with a lot of startup founders and realized I didn't want that at all. That wasn't the life that I wanted for myself. Um, and so I think I realized that whether it's a small change or a big change, we need to see for ourselves. We need to find ways of exposing ourselves to um, the experience of others. But more importantly, we need to find ways of experimenting with our own lives, with prototyping changes in our own lives, so that we, um, so that when we're contemplating these, these big changes, we know we're on the right path. We know that we are investing our time our resources, our money, whatever they might be in, uh, in changes that really make sense to us. I love that. Where do you want to send people if they want to learn more about your workshops, some of your books you've written? Sure. Uh, people should check out maketime.blog. That's the website for, for make time, not just the book, but kind of the whole philosophy, the whole movement. Um, we've got articles, tools, resources, the books, um, and anything new we do events, uh, workshops, stuff like that. It'll all, it'll all live there. 
Um, and I can't resist uh, telling people to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> um, if you if you reply, if you send me a tweet, I will not see it right away because I don't have Twitter on my phone. Um, I try to just look once a day, but um, but I do. In all seriousness, I do really enjoy Twitter. I love, um, especially love hearing from people who have been thinking about these things, who have who have read about this stuff, who are trying to make changes in their own lives. So. Follow me on Twitter. My username is Jazzer, J-A-Z-E-R. Fantastic. We'll link that up in the show notes and uh, really enjoyed diving into the story today, John. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reimagine Work. I'm having a ton of fun recording these interviews and connecting with the many listeners who keep reaching out across the world. This is an ad-free creative project, and if you want to help me keep it going, you can check out the link to support it in the show notes. I've actually coded up some links there that you can help support the podcast and do so directly. The other way you can support is just to share it with a friend, share with a nice tweet, a Facebook post, or even just standing in front of your friend and say, you have to download this now, check this out. If you have any thoughts on the episodes or guest suggestions, just shoot me an email. I love hearing from you guys, and I wish you all the best of luck in your own journeys to reimagine work.